Hey there, welcome to the House Podcast. We hope that today's message challenges you in the best ways. Remember to reach out to us anytime, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. And thank you, Oliver. It is an honor and a privilege to be with you guys this morning. Uh, as Oliver said, we, uh, we just kind of worked out perfectly. I mean, I, I love any excuse I can come uh, and be with my son here at the, at the house. But the truth of the matter is, I actually love just being with you guys, even if he wasn't here, because you are one of the coolest churches out there. You really are. Uh, he mentioned that we just had our conference, and there's uh, 215 churches in the Fellowship of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada in British Columbia. And um, so we had about 400 uh, pastors uh, at a conference here. Um, and that was great and everything, but I'd rather be with you. You're normal. Uh, they get a little crazy. So so anyway, it's good to be with you guys. My job, that working with that, as Oliver said, I'm one of the district leadership team. My responsibility is I visit those 215 churches. Uh, when it comes to particularly dealing with churches that are struggling or plateaued or declining, and, and I get to come in and work with their pastoral teams and their leadership teams to help them kind of see what they can do to get back on the track of being uh, healthy, vibrant churches, living out a couple of particular things. One, the great commandment, right? You guys know what the great commandment is in Matthew chapter 22, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And the second is then to help move them as a church to impacting their community, their city, their, their neighborhoods by living out the great commission, Right, which is go therefore and make disciples of all people, okay? And so when Oliver called me and he said, hey, we're in this series called The Great Invitation. I thought, well, this is awesome. I can just add a third step to everything I do too. So it's really, it worked out really good. And that invitation is, as you've been learning about the last number of weeks, uh, Jesus back in, in, in the beginning of the Gospels and Matthew comes to us and says, hey, come and follow me. It's a challenge for all of us as believers. To follow Jesus, to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, and to grow in, 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 in that. Um, James tells us in, in his first chapter of his book, he says that all of us as followers of Jesus are on this pathway to becoming mature and complete. Now, that's a great task. It really is when you kind of weigh it out. It's a big challenge for us. And so in this series, as you've been learning a little while, what does it actually look like to be a follower of Jesus. What does that practically look like? Because there's this kind of ethereal concept to it. It's like, yeah, I'm a believer in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a better follower of Jesus. But what does that look like? Well, throughout the Gospels, there's all sorts of practical steps on how to get from where you are to where you want to be on that journey. And in a little bit here, we're going to look at the book of Philippians, where Paul actually challenges us with, uh, today I'm going to share with you three very specific, very simple ways that he says, to be a follower of Jesus, you need to do this. But first, I want to give you this analogy. How many people love shopping? Have we got any shoppers here? Oh, like there's way more men actually waving their hand than ladies. That's... Kelowna, you're my people. In my family, I have, a, I have a daughter, I have a son, and my wife, and I am like the, the biggest shopper. I'm the girl in the family. I got boots and shoes and everything like that. And we love shopping, okay? And actually, one of, that's actually secretly one of the reasons why I love coming to Kelowna. This is like a fashion kind of capital of BC. It's like you just spend a time downtown sitting at any cafe, and I'm like, I don't, any, I don't see anybody dressing like that in Vancouver. I don't see anybody dressing like that. Look at those. Look at those boots. Like, oh, sweet. And so I actually love coming here and shopping. And um, so my family and I, we pastored in Las Vegas for 13 years. 
And I, as much as I was excited about like going to Las Vegas to, to shepherd and to pastor the church that we were going to, I was more excited about outlet malls. Yes, you just can give me that anytime. You can be like, preach, go. All right. And so the first like two weeks we were there, we were like looking all over the place for the outlet malls, found these great outlet malls in Las Vegas. And my family was all excited. At that time, Canyon was only like five years old. And he was just like, I want to go to the Nike store. It's like, okay, we'll find the Nike store. And my daughter was like, I want to go to the Apple store. You know, it's like, great. So we got to the mall. We walked in an entrance of the mall. We had never been before. It was this massive mall. You've probably done this just like we did. The very first thing you do when you go inside is you're like hunting around looking for the mall map, right? That big glowing thing that has like a blueprint of the map and all the different sections. And you go to it and you're like, okay, Nike store. Uh, oh, boom, there it is. Third level, it's store number 13,020, whatever. And then, oh yeah, there's the Apple store. Okay, there too. Well, what's the next thing that you do? Anybody? Shopping lady? You look for the, you are here, Right? Come on, now you've all been there, right? You're on this big map. Now you know where you want to go, but then you're like, well, how do I get there? Because I've never been in this mall. I've got to figure out the path. So you find that sticker that's usually like stuck somewhere, and it's like, you are right here. And then you go about this path planning of saying, here's where I am, there's where I want to go, how am I going to get there? We've got to turn right, go up some stairs, go down this elevator, past the swimming pool, past the ice rink, go all over there, and then boom, I'm at the store that I want to get to. Well, in a lot of ways, when we talk about the great invitation that Jesus gives us, that says, be a follower of me, live like me. It's like, like I said, that's actually a hard task. So what are some pathways to get there? What are the steps that we need to take to do that? I believe that Paul gives us some very simple and very clear ones in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles today, or your tablets, or your phones, or whatever, you can pull them out and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have them, these guys have, a, have them up on the big screen behind me. This is a little bit of a lengthy passage. I want to read it together. I'm going to read it quickly, okay, but, but follow along. Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul speaking to the church in Philippi, and he says this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Or your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jumping down to verse 14, it says this, do everything without complaining, without arguing, so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. 
Paul throws out, I think, some very practical ways that you and I can be followers of Christ. He gives us actually almost in a, in a, in a I think it's so simple that it becomes difficult for us to do these things. Let's jump right in and have a look at three very specific things that he says here. The first one is this. He says, you need to, to be a good follower of Christ, bring unity and not division wherever you are. It's interesting that Paul starts with this. Even back in the New Testament, there was division in our churches. Now, I find that funny. I've been, I've been, I'm, a, I'm a, the son of a pastor, grandson of a pastor, great uncle. It's like all my family members before have all been pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries. And so I've grown up in this kind of idea of like my whole life has been church from the, from the day I was born. And yet, I think it's funny because I think of it as family, and yet the world often looks at it as this group of people who are hypocritical, divisive, arrogant, and judgmental. And our church, and this is the thing that we need to realize, and I think Paul realized this back when he was talking to the church in Philippi. He had just set this church up, poured his life and his heart into them, began to teach them, began to help them grow, and all of a sudden there started to be disunity amongst them. It seems like it's something that just creeps in no matter how hard we try to fight against it. Disunity happens in church. Look at the last couple of years. They've been brutal. For 35 years of being a pastor, I have never seen the disunity that has happened in church over the last couple of years. Instead of coming to church and, and always hearing just about forgiveness and grace and love, Unfortunately, we've walked into place and we've started to talk about what political party do you support? Or do you agree with my opinion on this issue or this issue or that issue? How do you feel about vaccines or masks or gender issues? And, and believe me, I'm not here today to take a stand on any side of the spectrum. I'm just pointing out the fact that our culture today has seeped into the church world and it has brought division and unharmonious like relationships and disunity. And the truth is, Paul's challenging us here and saying, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to live like Jesus, you need to be someone who unites and not divides. Verse two, you can feel Paul's passion as he shares this. And he's basically looking at the church of Philippi and he's saying, please, I have poured my life into you. I have done everything I can. So could you please truly just... Make me happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, by loving one another, by working together with one mind and one purpose. If we're going to live like Jesus, then we must unite people around biblical truths and not divide them based on social issues. Amen? That's a great amen spot there. Just, just kind of giving you that side note. Just let me step out here. That's an amen spot. And I was just going to remember, okay, I'm, I'm going to take, we're going to walk with grace in this, but I was just with 400 pastors. They're all just gung-ho all the time. Preach it, amen, woo-hoo. And I know here at the house, we're a little more calm. We're a very chill crowd. You just got a latte. You're taking it easy. Maybe I had a little piece of pumpkin loaf. It's all good. So I'm going to step out of that and it'll be okay. But I'm just letting you know there, that is an amen moment. Okay, thanks. <sighs> yes, thanks, man. All right, it's all right. So here's the truth, though, and I want you to see this this morning, this challenge from Paul, is that no matter how hard we try, that in our culture today, it is easy for us to become intolerant and stubborn and unforgiving 
And yet that is not what it means to be a follower of Christ. When Paul was writing to this church in Philippi, he, he, he recognized that they were dealing with discord and, and disunity because there's people there. And people, just like you and I, are flawed. We have mistakes and faults and problems and sin in our lives. And so there's this challenge that says you're going to have to work hard just because Christ has come into your heart or in your life and given you a new perspective and changed you and forgiven you. It doesn't mean that it is easy now. Because the culture that we are immersed in is a culture of getting who, what, they, what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. And anybody else's needs, and anybody else's issues, and anybody else's beliefs don't matter to you. It's what's good for you. And yet Paul comes and says, what should set us apart as followers of Christ is our ability to be loving, forgiving, and united. Paul points out that this type of division that happens in our culture today is not a, just a social issue. It's, it's not a, a political issue or a relationship issue. It's a heart issue. If in our hearts we're easily offended or we're unwilling to forgive or it's easy for us to hold a grudge, then all that does is lead to disunity and division. And what kind of example to the world of Jesus would that be? And this is what he says. Look at, just take for a moment for us, if we could today. Like, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, we see throughout the New Testament, there are, I think there's lots of things that we can point out, but I think there's two very strong character traits that Jesus shows us in everything he does. One, Jesus thought of other people above himself all the time. I mean, no matter what you see, no matter what part of ministry you see, I mean, he's standing at the well with the woman at the well. He didn't just push her out of the way and say, I'm thirsty, and, and remember I am the creator of the universe. No, he steps aside and he gives to her. He wants her needs to be met first. And we see that over and over when he's teaching, when he's healing, when he's ministering to people. Others' needs are always the most important thing. Verse 5 and 6 in chapter 2 of Philippians says this, You must then have the same attitude that Christ had. That though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Jesus put others' needs ahead of himself always. The second character trait that we see of Jesus that stands out so strongly throughout the whole New Testament is that his whole life was about sacrifice. So when Paul is challenging us to be people who bring unity and not division, there is a, 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 a bit of an overtone that says that we need to be people that step out of the way and are willing to sacrifice just like Jesus did. If you come back with me for a moment, all the way back at the beginning of the New Testament in the book of John, John chapter 18 is one of the darkest, gloomiest, most foreboding sections of the New Testament. It is the, the place where Jesus' ministry and life is about to come to culmination and end. It shows us in chapter 18 where Judas has betrayed him. And where he's brought with him soldiers and military with torches and weapons drawn. And they're about to arrest Jesus. It's a dark, scary moment. He was just about to be arrested. Just about to be put on trial. Just about to be crucified. But look at how Jesus reacts in that moment. He didn't run. He didn't argue or bargain his way out. He knew what was coming and he sacrificed himself anyhow. Verse 4 says this, Jesus, fully recognizing all that was going to happen to him, stepped forward to meet his accusers. When you read through there, in fact, the next couple of verses, Jesus steps up to his accusers and says, I am the one you're looking for. Let these people go 
forgive them. It's this beautiful and incredible moment of sacrifice. Following Jesus, we see that he himself put his pain and his suffering above everything else. He, he was willing to do that so that other people wouldn't have to do it. I look at that verse in, in, in chapter 18 of John and, and, and that phrase that opens it where it says, Jesus fully realizing all that was going to happen to him. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that his hands and his feet would be pierced by nails on that cross. He knew that people would slap him and spit on him and pull the beard from his face as he hauled that cross through city streets. Jesus knew that he would take beatings and lashing. He knew that his friends would desert him. And yet in that moment, we see this heart of sacrifice. His thoughts were of others, forgiving them and loving them. Following Jesus, living like Jesus means that everything we do, and this is a challenge for us, should bring togetherness, forgiveness, and unity, even if it costs us. What I mean by that is this. Can you walk away from that argument without getting the last word in? Can you hold back that harsh word even though you know they deserve it? Can you save that difference of opinion so that instead of causing division, what happens is love, forgiveness, and unity is prevalent. The reality of it is, folks, we live in a broken, fragmented world that needs to see that kind of unity brought into it rather than disunity. The second thing I see as we look through these 15 verses of challenging us is that Paul comes right out with two very simple words after this. He says, bring unity, not division. And then he comes and he says, be humble. Be humble. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You want to live like Jesus so that the world sees him in you? It starts by being humble. It's interesting to me that Paul comes right after this. He goes from unity into humility. Because humility is this key ingredient in building harmonious relationships. And Paul recognized that. In verse 3 and 4, he just jumps right at us and he says, Don't be selfish. Don't try and impress others, but be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. And humility is one of the most difficult things that we struggle with as a human race. I can be honest with you this morning and say it's hard. When you know something better than somebody else, you're just like, you're dumb. But then you realize, oh, okay, yeah, Jesus would have never said that. It's like we struggle with this all the time. I, I, I was a worship pastor for 20 some years. And I can tell you this, musicians are the worst when it comes to that. You, uh, you have developed a skill and they're all at the back right now going, what are you talking about? <laughs> Not you guys though, because the house is amazing. But the truth is, it's like we struggle with that. You, you get a skill, you get a talent and it's easy to become arrogant and cocky and, and that happens in so many parts of life. And yet here Paul is challenging saying that's the last thing you need to do because people need to see in you a humble and broken spirit and heart. Humility means that you don't always have to be right and prove to everyone that you're right. And yet throughout the Bible, we actually see this exemplified, characterized as humility being something of genuine gratitude for what God has done for us and a lack of arrogance. We are called to be humble followers of Christ. There's actually a, a connection when you study through the Old and the New Testament 
And it's very powerful that you see this humility and godliness go hand in hand. In Psalm 25, verse 9, I want to show you a couple different scriptures here this morning. It says this, he leads the humble in doing right, teaching them his way. There's a connection there, but first we humble ourselves and then we learn how Jesus lives. And then can ourselves then exemplify that. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. There's a recognition there that you don't know everything, shouldn't know everything, but need to rely and trust on God's word and his guidance in your lives. That starts with humility. Matthew 11, verse 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. Our example from Jesus is a man of humble heart and contrite spirit. Proverbs 22, 4 says this. It says, humility is the fear of the Lord. Humility is to see ourselves as we actually are. Broken. Fallen. Sinful and helpless people in desperate need of a savior. And if we can understand that, if we can grasp that and know that that's how we're to live because the people around us are broken, fallen, desperate people in need of a savior. And they can see that in us. One of the things that I love about God's word, a lot of people look at this book and they think it is just a book of rules and regulations. It's not. It is a book of promises of truths to help us live our lives in a better way, to find hope and joy and peace and forgiveness. It's incredible. And one of the things that I love about it is whenever God's word gives us a path that says, do these things, and we look at them and they're like, oh man, those are hard, God. There's always a partnership there with what comes next. If you do these things, this will happen. And this is what God says to us out of his word. If you're humble, if you're contrite and broken in spirit, this is what's going to happen. We go all the way back to the Old Testament in chapter 66 of Isaiah. And it says this, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts. A confident, assured promise from God. You live your life humbly and contritely. I will bless you. Who doesn't want God's blessing in their lives? That's another amen moment, right? Woo! And that's a truth there, and I love it. So God says, live humbly, put others' needs in front of you, and I will bless you. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and not just because we share the same last name. He's a great pastor, a great author, a great teacher. And I love his definition of what humbleness is. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. What a great explanation of that. It means for us today to be followers of Christ that everything we do in life, we're not just thinking about ourselves. Our feelings, our preferences, our opinions, our needs don't need to be the priority in life. We need to think of others instead. And this kind of humility brings unity in the church and helps it move forward. But that's hard. I love what Paul does. It's kind of like he progressively is actually getting a little more bold. Being unity, not division. Try to be humble and put others' needs in front of you. And then he comes in on the third one in here. And just this one kind of just hits you right in the face. Stop complaining! <laughs> I'm kind of sensing as you read through this that there's maybe a little frustration in Paul. 
It's like, I think there's that kind of like, okay, we all, we all are just regular people. We have hurts and pains and struggles and we go through life and that. But you know when we're on our way to church in the morning, it's like that 20 minutes that you're coming from your house to the house, you need to become, uh, uh, you're leaving being a regular person and now you're a like fully radiant Christian when you get here, right? And I kind of feel like this when we're reading this, Paul's kind of like starts out very pastoral. Oh, I love you. Bring unity. And then he gets a little more tense. You know, kind of be humble. Quit thinking to yourselves. And by this point, he's a little frustrated. It's like, stop complaining, people. And to me, it is so interesting that that happened back in this time, in biblical times, just like it happens today. Verse 14, he comes out with a straight up challenge to us. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Not do some things, not do most things, everything. I mean, he completely rules it out. Don't complain. Don't come to church. Man, crap, the seats are tight. My latte was cold. Is there air conditioning? That hazer in the back, can that not be? <laughs> and I think Paul recognizes this back then and even today, that there is this constant change that we as a people are so easily slipped into these moments of complaining. And that isn't representing Jesus well. Now maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm not a complainer. Come on now. Maybe you're not a vocal complainer. You're not going Karen on everybody in the parking lot at the mall. But let's be honest. You've had those moments where under your breath, there's been a little murmur. <laughs> stupid. Right? I mean, look at, I was telling these guys in the earlier service today, I live in the lower mainland. And I think I knew what traffic was. And then I got stuck on Harvey at two o'clock on, you know, Tuesday afternoon. That's brutal. I was just like, Stip! oh, bless you. Because I wasn't totally sure if it was one of those 400 pastors that was like blocking me out there. But under my breath, driving all the way back home or to the hotel, I was just like, I can't believe this. How many of us have done that? And we think we don't complain, we don't argue, we're not like that, but yet we do have those moments. And that's been happening since biblical times. Look at back in Exodus in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. I mean, if anybody should have understood that God doesn't want you complaining and arguing, it should have been them. You were brought out of slavery from the Egyptian hierarchy, sent into freedom. I mean, look at their lives. It was amazing. God worked amazing miracle for them. He delivered them from slavery, parted the Red Sea, provided for their every need. And yet, as you read through those verses, you start to see that. What did they do? They complained. They murmured. Murmured. That's a strange word. They whined. They grumbled. And you would think that today we would have learned something after all of these years, but yet in church we still complain. God sent his son to die for you and I. He forgives all our sins, all our sins and mistakes. He gives us his Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us, to empower us. He gives us new purpose and new direction in life. He hears and he answers all our prayers. That's an amen one. And yet, what do we do? We complain. And Paul is reminding us that is, if this is what you really want to do, is this what it means to follow Jesus? Because complaining makes you unhappy, and it makes everyone around you unhappy. And if you want your life to be a witness to who Jesus is and be a strong, diligent follower of Christ, 
Stop complaining. I love how Paul wraps this whole section up and I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back. He brings us this teaching and he wraps up all of these very pointed, clear ways of being followers of Christ. But he says, here's this picture that I need you to get a hold of. Yeah, stop complaining. Be humble. Bring unity. Because what I want you to do is to stand out from the world. Verse 15 says this, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world of crooked and perverse people. What a challenge. Live like stars in the darkness of this world. Let people see that you are different, that your life has been changed, that everything that you do, everything that you say, everywhere that you go, how you act in your relationships at home, on campus, in the business world, at Walmart, wherever it might be, understand that you have the opportunity to be a reflection of Jesus. Stop arguing and complaining. Stop uh, causing disunity. Be humble. That will show the world that you are different. Shining like stars in the darkness. Paul reminds us so strongly here with these last couple of verses that you and I live in this world, but we're not of it. And we were never intended to be. This world, though, needs Jesus. It needs Jesus. Because as we mentioned earlier, it's broken and hurting and fragmented. And the only one who can bring peace and healing and grace is Jesus. And you and I can play a role in how that happens. By putting your life on display, you can be a beacon that points people to Jesus. And so in this series, The Great Invitation, I give you today just three simple steps on how to be a follower of Christ. Live like him so that the world sees a difference. Can I pray with you this morning? Father, thank you so much for your word, for its promises and its guidance. I pray today, Lord, for everyone that hears my voice, that you would give us the strength to do just what you've challenged us in Philippians. To hold back when we can overpower. To bring unity and forgiveness and gentleness and grace in every situation. When we're divided over political things or gender issues or financial issues or anything, God, let us be reminded over and over again that what is important is not us getting our way but rather representing you. Give us broken, humble hearts and let us recognize and realize, Lord, how much we need you and how blessed we are that you have changed our lives and that that should be the thing that speaks volumes to the people around us. We're flawed. We're broken. And yet you made us your own, your children. Let humility be a characteristic in our lives so that people want to know us and therefore get to know you. And God, give us just the wisdom to stop complaining in every aspect of life. But if truly we are to be good followers of Jesus and live like you want us to, then give us the courage, the boldness, and the strength to walk through every situation, home, work, school, whatever it might be, with an attitude that brings you honor and glory.
that represents who you are. I ask this today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.